Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. My name is Jason Steffenhagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota, and this is episode three of season two of Deconstructing the Bible, where we are exploring the parables of Jesus. And today we're going to be talking about kind of one of the Hall of Fame parables, one of the most common ones out there. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, which many of us are probably familiar with. If you're not, no worries. We'll go over it here in a minute. But before we dive into that, I wanted to start by talking about this interesting verse that Paul has for us. Paul at one point says, For your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, the rulers of the air. There's this beautiful value put on human life in that passage, that when we see flesh and blood, we're not looking at an enemy because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but there's something else at work that we may be needing to battle with, that we may need to be um, going against and wrestling with. And I think for some, one of the ways of explaining this verse, this, you know, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, the rulers of the air, is to talk about spiritual warfare language, which we haven't really talked much about on this podcast, but we talk about spiritual warfare language, that there's a spiritual realm, the realm of angels and demons, this, you know, the spiritual world where God is at war um, with with Satan and you know, ultimately God triumphs in the end and, you know, the blood of the lamb will overcome the power of the enemy and there will be victory. And, and so there's one way of, of, of understanding it. That's this very kind of spiritual battle that is raging. And our job is to try to participate in that as best as we can, you know, ultimately through the power of prayer. You know, one person I heard talk about the spiritual battle was um, it was really insightful on it and seemed to have a lot to say about it. Said that you know when you're when you come across a situation where it's not lining up with God's ideal, it's not lining up with God's best. There may be something spiritually at work here that needs to be combated, and that always made me uncomfortable because I'm not one that is quote unquote tapped into like the spiritual realm. I'm not one who sees angels everywhere or assumes things are demonic. I'm not one that is kind of operating on that level as as others within the Christian community may have um may may do on a more frequent basis or or have a, a better understanding of. So I, I really have always struggled with like how do I do this? And so the advice was given, you know, when you come across something that isn't lining up with God's best or isn't lining up with God's, you know, God's will or 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 how things should be, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, whether that's sickness or whether that's catastrophe or whatever it is, you know, what you do is is you just pray that if there is anything in the spiritual realm that you claim the power of Jesus, you claim the blood of Christ over it, that Christ has already died and rose again, and therefore whatever is going on in the spiritual realm it ha- has no more power. And so you just pray that prayer and it is meant for you to be, you know, going to battle, right? To fight against the principalities and the powers, the rulers of the air, to participate in that battle, in that spiritual battle. 
And so I think for me, uh, for a long time, that has, you know, been helpful because I don't really understand this in a deep way. I've not studied it. I've not done a super deep dive into it. And so I think being able to have something to do that isn't just kind of passively, you know, wish it away or ignore it or pretend like it's not real has been helpful. But, you know, recently I came across an idea that Richard Rohr wrote about and and spoke about that I think is also really helpful and maybe another way to frame this, right? I mean, part of what we're doing in this podcast is we're not just saying it's either this or this or this, you know, it's pick one of these three things and and now this is the only right idea. Like so much of this idea of of spirituality and, and our faith is about faith and hope and love. And these are not exactly things that we can put our finger on all the time and like definitively have solid concrete answers to 100% of the time. Otherwise, we wouldn't call it faith. We'd call it fact. And so um, I think at some level, we're operating within the realm of possibility. We're operating as the rabbis did in the realm of Midrash, where we're wrestling with what does this really mean? Could it mean this? Could it mean that? So in one regard, you know, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the, you know, the the rulers and the principalities, rulers of the air. Yeah, like at some level, like maybe there is this cosmic, you know, spiritual battle going on, and we participate in it through prayer and through the anointing of oil, through the claiming of the power of of Jesus, um, who eternally sets us free from that battle and from the the clutches of the enemy. Maybe that is one way of of dealing with it. Maybe that is one way of understanding that. But Richard Orr offers this really beautiful idea that there's something kind of baked into cultures and societies. There's something even baked into what it means to be human, especially when we're at a more immature understanding of being human, where we kind of culturally, societally, maybe even familially, right, as a family, we, um, in order to understand who we are, we create enemies. And we don't just create enemies of ideas, we create enemies of people, you know, and so we we have these divisions. We have Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals. We we have, you know, Yankees fans and Red Sox fans. We, you know, and that obviously that isn't as significant unless you're at a game and getting yelled at, then it feels pretty significant to be wearing the wrong colored jersey or the wrong hat. And so we have these tensions within communities. And it's against other people, people from other countries, people that look differently, people that worship differently than us, people that believe different things, people that believe um, that certain people should be allowed in the church and certain people should be kept out of the church. And so we create these divisions and we don't only create divisions, but then we see the person on the other side as an enemy and someone to be fought against, as opposed to someone to understand more deeply. You know, I think the maturity of faith, the maturity of being human is to seek understanding and to move towards harmony and shalom and to move towards unity within the human experience, right? Like, I mean, this is, Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter two, that the work of Christ has has um, eliminating the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, which is, you know, in a, in a way of saying, Hey, there's the people that God has historically been working through, the Jewish people. We read about that in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And there was, you know, this dividing wall of hostility that was kind of saying, hey, there's the people that are on the in and there's the people that are on the out. And the law kind of helps define that. Well, Jesus comes along and Paul is writing that 
Jesus removes the dividing wall of hostility. And so through the reconciliation of Christ, which I love Reverend Sean Moore, my friend, who defines reconciliation, the removing of barriers. The removing of barriers is what reconciliation is all about. So Christ, the work of Christ, is to remove the barriers, to reconcile Jew and Gentile, to reconcile these ancient groups that saw themselves on opposite sides. And there was hostility between the two, and now Christ is removing the hostility. Why? Because we are modeling ourselves after the maturity of Christ, who's willing to lay himself down, who's willing to love his enemy, who's willing to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give away his coat. He's willing to do the extra things. He's willing to serve and came to serve as opposed to express power and to claim power. So all authority was given unto Christ except for the fact that he decided not to use it for his own power, but instead to transform hearts and minds into a more mature understanding of what it means to be human. So the battle against the principalities and the powers, the rulers of the air, is kind of this first century way of saying there's a cultural thing in the air. There's this cultural way of creating division. There's this internal battle that we are all fighting. And the only way to express it is that there's this thing happening and it's spiritual and it's spiritual within us. And we instantly make enemies out of things that are not like us. And we, we want to make it simple for our brains. And so it's easy when it's, you know, this or that, us or them, in or out. And when we do that, we are creating division. We're creating separation. And so the battle is an internal battle. It's a cultural battle to stop seeing people that are different from us as outside of us, as enemies, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against these cultural, societal, these internal battles of how we see people. And, and it's a maturing process that when we grow in our faith, when we grow in our understanding of what God is up to, of how the Spirit is working in our lives, when we grow in that understanding of faith, we start to win that battle because we start to see the other as our neighbor. We start to see other as someone to be loved and to care for that has the same hopes and dreams and wants and needs and, and has the same flesh and blood and, and, is, and is someone in need of love and care and belonging and inclusion. And so we move towards being, as Paul writes in, in Ephesians chapter 2, we move towards the one new humanity, uh, which sounds kind of maybe woo-woo or, or kind of, you know, this, this kind of weird idea that we might see as a new agey or kind of culturally um, ambivalent towards truth or something like that. But like, that's just New Testament. That's just the letter to the church of Ephesus, right? That we're to be this one new humanity. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have differences. It doesn't mean that we don't have uniquenesses. Of course, we're going to have uniquenesses. Of course, we're going to be different people. We're going to be culturally different. We're going to be ethnically different. We're going to be, you know, racially different. We're going to have differences. And, but those are to be celebrated. Those are to be um, built upon. Those are to be uh, enhanced who we are. We're to, we're to grow because we're different, not to become myopic in, in how we're all the same, but we're to express um, like thanksgiving and gratitude for the fact that we're different, but that we can learn from each other more about what it means to be human, more about how to be generous and hospitable and kind um, because we are different. And so there's actually diversity within our unity, uh, and that makes us 
a holistic people um, as opposed to a myopic people. And so the battle is an internal battle. It's a cultural battle, societal battle to see people differently, to, to recognize that we are moving towards something that removes the barriers, takes down that wall of hostility, and moves towards being a family. We moves towards the unity. Now, this is all just a setup for this parable, right? I've already talked for 12 minutes, but I'm just setting this up because what we see in this parable is something really dynamic. And so in this parable, we have a lawyer who wants to test Jesus, which of course, probably not a great idea, but Jesus is all, Jesus is fine with this, right? He's, he's up for someone challenging him. And so this lawyer who, when we say lawyer, it probably was someone who was very well versed in the law and was potentially even a scribe. So sometimes you see a scribe, sometimes you see a lawyer, but it's someone who knew the Old Testament scriptures very well, possibly because they were writing down the law, right? A lawyer was someone who defended the law, which is the first five books. And so they were writing down the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, over and over. They were a scribe. And so they knew the scriptures really well. So this lawyer, this scribe stands up and tries to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And instead of answering the question, Jesus just says, well, what's written in the law? Because Jesus knows this is a lawyer. This is a scribe. He's, he's been writing this all his life. So what does it say? How do you read it? Which is a fascinating question, which my friend Stephanie Spencer would love for us to unpack. And I think we did last season a little bit, but there's so much more to, to go into that when you talk about Midrash and discussing the text. How do you read it? Jesus invites that person, invites this lawyer, this scribe to unpack it for himself. And so how do you read it? What is written in the law? And the lawyer, the scribe answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love your Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looks at him and says, you've answered right. Now go and do this, and you will live. You will experience what eternal life is meant to be like, because you are loving God and loving your neighbor. But The man desiring to justify himself, justify his actions, justify the way that he was living out these commandments, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Because if we can define who our neighbor is, then we know who to love. And we also know who we don't have to love. We know exactly what we have to do in order to accomplish eternal life or, or or in order to accomplish what Christ has called us to do. So if we know who our neighbor is, then we know how to complete this. And so Jesus gives him a story instead of a straight answer. Jesus said there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this was a very dangerous road. There's scholars have written about this, about how it was, it was often considered that people would, would make sure they had a weapon with them when they would go on this road because it was so highly trafficked by robbers. And so here they are going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, this dangerous road, and this man fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and, and then they departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place 
and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, which would have been disinfectants at the time, as well as a ceremonial uh, idea, right? So we see this when we're doing religious ceremonies at the time. We also see this when we're just trying to take care of someone's wounds, right? The oil uh, would have cleaned it, uh, and, and the wine would have cleaned it, and the oil would have been a, would have been helpful for helping with this. And so he set him on his own donkey or beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay when I return." Now, which of these three do you think, this is Jesus' question to the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer, the scribe said, the one who showed mercy on him. So Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, a couple things really quick. Now, we always talk about, okay, what's the what's the odd part? What's the countercultural? What's the move here? What's the reversal of the status quo? Now, in the the first century Jewish community, there were kind of three divisions of people. There were priests, there were Levites, and then there were the regular commoner. And so you had these three divisions of people. And so often when you would tell stories that had people in it and you were trying to give an example or kind of give a little parable, you would say, well, there was a priest and then there was a Levite and then there was a commoner. And so people expected to hear about a priest. They expected to hear about a Levite. But then this idea of the Samaritan completely flips the script, which if we don't know what a Samaritan is, we need to go back all the way to the Old Testament to when there's the divided kingdom. So the divided kingdom is after Solomon, the the kingdom gets ripped away from his son and there's a northern half and there's a southern half. There's the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. So the 10 northern tribes are called Israel. And for you know, a few generations, they are kind of ebbing and flowing, mostly bad, sometimes good, but ultimately they're not going in the right direction. The prophets are trying to warn them that bad's about to happen if they don't turn to the Lord. And sure enough, they don't heed the word of the prophet. And the Assyrians in the north come down and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, these 10 northern tribes. They conquer the northern kingdom. But They don't take people into exile. They don't abolish them off the face of the earth. Instead, they do this thing called syncretism, syncretism. And what that means is that they basically kind of intermarry and they become a completely different people through marriage and bloodlines and ethnicity. So they kind of meld with these 10 northern tribes and create a different ethnic group than what originally existed. And so. Fast forward a few hundred years, about 700 years into the first century, you have this group that are living in Israel, living in the Palestinian area that are called Samaritans. They live in this place called Samaria, and you would actually pass through it or have to go around it when you were going from the Galilee, where Jesus was, down to Jerusalem. And so Jesus would go past Samaria and oftentimes go through Samaria. This is where we see him encounter the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And so you would have to go through Samaria and the Samaritans were the great, 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 great grandchildren of the Northern kingdom that was syncretized with the Assyrians. So I know this is getting kind of confusing, but ultimately what you need to know is that they're kind of like 
partly Jewish. So they kind of grew up and they had some beliefs that were still based on the law of Moses and they had other beliefs that were based on what the Assyrians believed. And so it was this amalgamation of different belief systems. And so the Jewish people saw them as blasphemers because they weren't true Jews that worshiped at the temple in Jerusalem. They were these, you know, I think at some point they're called half-breeds, which of course is a completely horrible way of of talking about a people group. And so they would despise these people, which makes Jesus's encounter with the woman at the well astounding that he's connecting with her because culturally it was the last thing he should have been doing. And here in the parable of the good Samaritan, what everyone expected to hear was that a common Jewish person was going to be the hero of the story, the person that was just like them. Because Jesus is telling this story to a bunch of commoners. He's telling them that, yeah, the priests, they haven't always been there for you. And the Levites, who should have been kind of the the like the most ardent followers of the law, the descendants um, of, of Aaron, like these people should have been, of all people, they should have been the ones that would have kept the law. And so you have the priests, descendants of Aaron, Levites, the descendants of Levi, that they were also part of kind of the royal priesthood. These people should have been the ones that would have known to do better. But this common Jewish person, the one that's coming third, is going to be the hero of the story. But Jesus flips the script completely upside down and makes the Samaritan, the one that is completely outside of everyone's expectation, the hero of the story. A couple of thoughts on this. Some people have speculated that the reason why the priest and the Levite pass by the person is because they didn't want to sacrifice their purity. Because as a priest, as a Levite, being someone that was traveling to potentially do a religious ceremony to, to act as a priest, you needed to remain pure. And potentially touching a dead, a dead body would have been seen, as, would, have, would, have, would have made you impure. And so they would have had to gone through these rituals and this time of waiting, and they would have waited like six or seven days in order to be pure again. So they couldn't have performed their religious expectations once they got to Jericho or got to Jerusalem. And so they maybe passed by the man out of keeping themselves pure. But it's it's really hard to see it that way because it was the man was clearly alive, right? And and here's the other thing: the Samaritans also held to the purity code of Moses. They held to the purity code of the Hebrew scriptures. And so if the excuse for the priest and the Levite is they didn't want to become impure, well, the Samaritan had the same sense of purity codes. And so he would have passed by a dead body potentially as well. But instead, he goes and meets the needs of the man who's left for dead in the side of the road. So the priest and the Levite have every uh, law-abiding reason to go and engage this man and to offer help, but they don't. And the Samaritan, who has the same purity expectations, goes and offers help, sacrifices his money in order to help this man. So here's the thing. The original question is, who is my neighbor? But do you notice how Jesus frames the question at the end? He doesn't say, who is my neighbor? Because the answer would have obviously been the person hurting in the ditch. But Jesus says, which of these three proved to be neighborly to the man in the ditch? The question does not correspond with the earlier question. They aren't the same. One is, who is my neighbor? The second is, which person proved to be 
a neighbor. So here's what Hultgren writes in his book on the parables. If the issue is about love of the neighbor, the question one should be asking is that of how one is to express love, not to whom it should be expressed. It should be how do we express love, not to whom should we express it. And then he quotes Heinrich Grieven when he says, one cannot define one's neighbor. One can only define being a neighbor. You don't get to define who is your neighbor. You can only define being a neighbor. And I love that twist. So instead of saying who's in, who's out, who's part of my group, who's not, who do I get to serve, who should I not? Instead, the question is, what does it mean for me to be a neighbor? How do I remove the barriers? How do I take down the wall of hostility? How do I be transformed into the likeness of Christ? How do I mature by the Spirit so that I can show up differently in the world and love others, especially those who are different from me? Because as much as the Jews had animosity with the Samaritans, the Samaritans had as much animosity with the Jews. They were enemies. I mean, this is why it's written uh, in the book of Acts that you go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It's saying you go to your immediate place first, you go to the surrounding area, you go to your enemy, and then you take it to the ends of the earth. The Samaritans and the Jews were mortal enemies for hundreds of years. And yet this is who Jesus capitalizes on to help us see how profound being neighborly needs to be for us. So ask yourself, where does hostility lie for you? What group of people, what, what person, what, 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 what group, what, what society, what connection, what, what community do you have tension with? What barriers need to be removed? What wall of hostility needs to come down? Maybe it's within your own family. Maybe it's a political division. Maybe it's just a long-standing argument. Maybe it's a, a, a sense of, um, you know, cultural um, division. Maybe it's it's a it's a division w- within the, how you see someone, a different belief system, a different understanding of 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 how they love or who they love, and whatever it is, what what wall of hostility, what barrier is in the way that needs to come down? Where do you need to be neighborly, not who do you need to be neighborly to, but how are you going to be neighborly? And here's the beauty of the question. When you say, who is my neighbor, and it gets defined for you, you can meet the need and then you're done, right? Because you know who your neighbor is, you know what to do to serve them, and then you're finished. But when the question is, who is neighborly, you don't get to stop being a neighbor. You don't get to be completed in being a neighbor. You are always a neighbor. You are always someone who is growing and showing up and looking in the mirror and asking, okay, what battle do I need to fight against my own flesh and not my own, not, not flesh and blood, but my own sense of division, my own principalities and powers that are culturally or internally causing division for me? How do I let the spirit transform me so that I remove barriers and the wall of hostility and move towards love, move towards service? How do I serve the person that is different from me, who I may need to understand more deeply so that they go from being an enemy to being someone in my community? I go from seeing them as someone I'm divided against 
to someone that I break bread with? How do we move in that direction in a way that brings about God's peace, God's hope, God's love on earth as it is in heaven? This is the challenge. This is the calling. This is what it means to learn from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Hope that you join us on Zoom. There will be a link in the show notes for this episode at one o'clock on Thursday. We'll be on Zoom and you're welcome to join me and join the conversation as we talk more about this parable, explore it. You know, if you have different thoughts on it, if you have a different idea of how to approach it, you know, like Jesus asked the question, how do you read it? Well, how do you read it? How do you read this parable? How do you read this understanding? Maybe you think I'm way off, which is fine. Maybe I am. Maybe I have more learning to do and you're the exact person I need to learn from. So join us on Zoom at one o'clock. Check out the show notes for the link. We can't wait to to hear from you and to learn from you as we navigate deconstructing the Bible further uh, later this week. Thanks again for joining us on Deconstructing the Bible. Take care. Thank you.